This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So the title to this one is a uh, dead giveaway that I'm entering some challenging territory. But uh, it was back quite a few months ago, uh, I think it was before our summer semester even started, I gave a message called The Vaccine Dilemma. And uh, I think it's one of my most listened to sermons I've ever given, which is says something just right there. Uh, and so... The fact that I'm giving the vaccine dilemma part two is not for marketing reasons at all. It's uh, for a deep burden uh, in my soul as something is unfolding in the body of Christ globally right now that I am very aware of because I'm getting a lot of feedback internationally from people that are looking for wisdom and insight in how to respond to a mandate for something known as a vaccine. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with that, I don't know that it really matters that you understand what a vaccine is, I went through that in the first one, or uh, if you're not in a decision-making position at this exact present moment, uh, for instance, you're a child, I don't know that it matters that you understand all the details, but hopefully you can catch the bigger idea that is going to be in this message And that is how, as Christians, we navigate through a decision-making process in regards to things that could be hazardous or more challenging than the typical decision of what we eat for breakfast. These are very challenging issues for those of you that are familiar with them because there are a lot of people in here that would understand that there's conscience matters that are being mixed in. And it's not just preference always, but then we could also have issues of what we could call fear. And when you start combining all of these, fear and anxiety with issues of preference, strong issues of preference, and then issues of conscience, you have a soup. And it can be very, very difficult to see straight, which is why I feel compelled, and that's probably one of the best ways to describe it. There are a lot of messages I know I'm supposed to give, and this is a message I have to give. And so here I am in an extremely vulnerable place where every word that I say will be measured, tried, and probably hung, and yet I'm still going to speak. And I am with a priority, if I could explain my priority in doing this, it's to preserve the body of Christ. It's ironic because the vaccine is being given to protect health. My desire is to protect the health of the body, and that's why I'm giving this message. The vaccine, it's a unique challenge facing the church. Key questions that I want you to allow the Spirit of God to help you answer as we go through this message. Are we being ruled by fear, preference, or conviction? Because the Bible is going to speak to us squarely and straightly on those different matters. What does the Bible say to do? If we are ruled by fear, it gives us a very specific prescription. If we are ruled by preference, it gives us a very specific prescription. 
And if we are ruled by conviction, it gives us a very specific prescription. So therefore, for me as an individual, I need to evaluate that. And since I have not struggled with fear over the vaccine or over uh, COVID-19, my issue personally tends to be in the dimension of preference or conviction. For some of you, and this is what my first message, the vaccine dilemma was mainly on, was the issue of fear in the body, that there are people that are getting the vaccine because they fear COVID-19. And there are people that are not getting the vaccine because they fear the vaccine. And as a result, fear is the motivator. And fear, if that it tends to be what you are gripped by in and through this process, I would highly encourage you to listen to part one of this. So you can catch part one, and this is for the video, but it is for you guys. It, ironically, it isn't even up yet. It'll be up tomorrow. The page that will have the part, one and uh, two part uh, series there. Uh, but ellersley.com and it's the-vaccine-dilemma uh, forward slash. So I have received a flurry of communication from people all over the world. So I'm just going to give you a smattering of this. This is from a Canadian uh, brother in the Lord, a uh, very dear friend. Please pray for us up here, Eric. Things have gotten real the last two days with vax passports and government restrictions. I'm headed to an emergency prayer meeting with one of the head doctors in Alberta called by a politician five minutes ago with a few brothers. Whatever news he's got, he's very rattled. Praying it at about 9 p.m., please pray with us. A New Zealand sister. Eric, regardless of whether I choose to be vaccinated or not, I pray that I would not stoop so low as to use a vax passport to enter my own church. The thought of standing outside my church and being denied entry simply because I refuse to produce a vaccine passport is breaking my heart. That was just a couple days ago. This is an American uh, sister in the Lord. My role in my church, which she has a very high up role, is now indefinitely on hold. The reason I am unable to provide a vaccine passport. New Zealand pastor, this was sent out this past week. I'm sending this email out to eight men that I consider pillars of the faith and that I know trust in the Lord. I respect you all and trust your judgment, so I'm asking for your help. I'd love to hear each of your views, opinions, and positions on this topic of the vaccine. I'd also be keen to hear how you have managed the discussion in your various environments. So one of the responses I wanted to show because it's sort of what ultimately stirred the fact that, okay, we have a pretty serious issue here. Because this is a pastor I would highly regard, and I recognize in his response that we had, I mean, quite the divisive responses, even from these eight. And you would, be, you would respect uh, these people as well. And so it's a very interesting dynamic we're facing, and I'm realizing, okay, something needs to be said on a, on a, on a matter that is foundational to this. So this is a response from a prominent Canadian pastor. I didn't know there was a Christian position on vac vaccinations. I'm a bit confused as to how there could be. I take drugs every day because of heart disease, and I have never even thought that there might be a Christian position on such procedures other than among those who reject medicine on the grounds of God being sufficient for our health. This is purely a health issue, not just for ourselves, but for those we mix with, so as to avoid both getting COVID and being a carrier for it. To be pro-life is to be pro-vaccine. Or am I missing something? Now, I know some of you, because I know you, were thinking you are missing something. <laughs> However, here's what I want you to recognize. 
there is a division that is, the veneer to it is very, very thin right now. And we're one dumb move away from dividing the body of Christ very strongly and sharply. And we must not be divided over something as ridiculous as a vaccine. Now, some of you I know are thinking, this is not ridiculous. And I'm going to say it does not fall into the pale of historic Christianity of a reason that you should divide from your brother or sister. If they have the vaccine or they don't, that is not a divisive issue in the body of Christ. And so as a result, we are very, very vulnerable to fracture right now. So this same pastor is going to pose a question. The sole question to my mind is, do I value preserving my own health or do I value reducing my own risk as a carrier to others? Is there any other issue in this? Now, for some of you that know that there are other issues in this, that could seem ignorant, but I want you to recognize that from certain vantage points, it is very simple. And that's actually part of my message today is for you to recognize that there are different ways that we approach things. In this very room at, here at Ellerslie, we have so many differing viewpoints on certain issues in the Bible, but we don't divide because we don't make those our focus. None of us have ever divided in this particular church over the vaccine because basically those of us that lead this church are like, we will not divide over that. And, and that goes for a lot of things in here. If we were start to, starting to bring up issues of baptism and style of baptism, of head coverings, of the role of women in the church, we could have all sorts of flavors that start to shoot up. And they're issues of conscience, too. These are not small issues for some of us in here. And as a result, you could have a fracture over something like speaking in tongues. And we could divide this body, but for some of you, it's an issue of conscience and of deep conviction scripturally, and some of you on the opposite side that may not believe that we should speak in tongues, it's an issue of conscience for you because you actually feel that any tongue speaking nowadays would be of the devil. And so as a result, you have deep-seated issues that could divide us, but we will not be divided by those issues. And it's a decision of the body of Christ. We understand that there is something greater that binds us together. And some of the other issues that could fracture us will not. Why? Because we will not let them. Why? Because God tells us not to let them. And so as a result, it's funny, 1 Corinthians, that's the entire point of the book. As Paul's dealing with a fractured church, as this ought not to be. Some of you are saying you're with Apollo. Some of you are saying you're with Paul. Some of you are saying you're with Peter. Hey, guys, there shouldn't be this division in the church. And all three of those guys are pretty impressive. And so it could be good opinion. It could be sound, and yet it shouldn't divide. So a pastor in Texas sends me this while I'm preparing this message. I mean, it literally pops into my inbox while I'm preparing this message. With regard to the vaccine itself, Christians need to be able to make medical decisions led by their own conscience. The only vaccines readily available in the United States have been manufactured using fetal tissue from induced abortions. My knowingly receiving this vaccine is tacit approval and cooperation with the practice of abortion, a practice I personally believe to be sinful. I have never knowingly taken medication that was manufactured using fetal tissue. Therefore, I cannot take the vaccine in good conscience. All right, have you guys noticed that we're starting to amp up the stakes? Two pastors I highly regard, and they're on complete opposite sides, both with passion. 
the matter of conscience. This is going to become very, very important in this, and that's one of the main things I want to teach on is the issue of conscience. Because as the church at large, I don't even think we're bringing it up as far as how this impacts this entire idea. Our country has historically understood the value of conscience, and for whatever reason, lately, has sort of flushed that down the toilet to the point where it's creating a tension that most of us would say, that doesn't need to be here. We don't need to create this tension. And yet it's real, and it's not really the church that's trying to create it, but it's there, and we as a church need to respond to it. So Mark Twain says it this way, the preacher who casts a vote for conscience sake runs the risk of starving. I don't know if you guys understand that. As a preacher, I do. (laughs) In other words, when you start siding with conscience, you usually end up in bad straits. It's a lot easier to compromise. Just don't stand with your fervent idea of how this needs to work. Just bend a little. And if you bend a little, everything will go a lot easier for you. The approaching storm. Pastor one says to be pro-life is to be pro-vaccine. Pastor two says to be pro-life is to be anti-vaccine. Do you recognize that it's sort of hard to have pastor one and pastor two hang out together? That is a completely different conclusion. And as a result, it creates a tension. And even in this room, I think there are those that could probably identify on both sides. And if I were to start giving reasons of why someone would say to be pro-life is to be pro-vaccine, it does make sense. If you genuinely believe that the vaccine is a gift from God to help us, just like a lot of people do when you wear your contacts, you say, thank you, Lord, for my contacts. In other words, scientific development, we could conclude, is a gift of God's creation, God giving intellect to people on this earth, and then them prospering that intellect in and through research and coming to conclusions that actually aid and abet our health, our eyesight, our ability to knock out a cold quickly, our ability to not feel the pain of a headache. And we would, most of us would say, praise God for these things. And so it's, if you concluded that the vaccine was a gift from God, to do what? To preserve you and to preserve others from a transfer of something that could harm them, you could recognize why someone could say to be pro-life is to be pro-vaccine. And yet, if you have information that were to say that fetal tissue was used to create this vaccine, you could understand why someone who is pro-life would say, What? Well, if fetal tissue is being used, then well, then how could I be pro-life and be pro-vaccine at the same time? Welcome to the dilemma. A question posed by a prominent Canadian pastor. So this is the same question that I read earlier, but I'm going to bring it up again. The sole question to my mind is, do I value preserving my own health? And do I value reducing my own risk as a carrier to others? Is there any other issue in this? And I would say, yes, there is another gigantic issue in this, and that is it's the health of the body of Christ. Our decision in regards to this is more than just us. It is everyone around us in the body. In other words, the way I have to navigate this isn't just for me personally and for my family personally. There's a lot of issues that fall into that category. If I save or if I spend my own money, you know, it may not affect you. But this one does, and how I lead in and through this impacts others, which puts greater weight on my decision-making process. 
because there is something bigger than me taking or not taking the vaccine personally. It's how do we protect the health of the body of Christ? So if the vaccine is supposed to help the health of an individual, I'm interested in Christ being injected into us in this situation to preserve the health of the body. What's the good of preserving my health individually from a, from a, from a virus if I splinter the body in the process? My job is to aim at serving you. And ironically, I could put that on your shoulders too and say your job is bigger than just serving you. It's to serve those around you. So if you recognize that this could very easily divide the body and harm the body around you, you need to think outside of yourself in regards to this. Jesus was willing to give up his health in order to give, up, give life to his body. Throughout Christian history, men and women have laid down their lives to supply strength to the body of Christ. This is just the nature of Christ. Christ isn't just thinking about his own skin, otherwise he wouldn't have gone to the cross. You know, if there was a vaccine for the cross, it would have been disobedience to the Father. It's like, no way am I going to disobey that, but he could have gotten out of it. And yet, he chose to agree, and in so doing, his body was harmed. In other words, it's not necessarily a negative to think of actually being harmed physically because you're walking in obedience. That's just a premise point in this. And throughout Christian history, men and women have laid down their lives to supply strength to the body of Christ. This is one of my, uh, to say favorite meditations, that's, that's not true, but it's an important meditation in my life. And that is the take me instead meditation. I always picture it in a Jason's deli, I don't know why. And I picture everyone sitting there and then some terrorists come in and they shoot their guns, their machine guns into the ceiling. And pieces of ceiling are falling all over the place and people are screaming and they're jumping to the floor. And they grab someone in the crowd and they put a gun to her head. And they, you know, they make some statement like, unless we get what we want, we'll kill her. And this is where the Christian rises up. And this is the line, okay? It's, it's very noble. I've never done this, okay? However, I like it and I'm attracted to it. And that is that in the midst of it, I don't fall down on the ground screaming. I stand there. And then I raise my hand and I take a step forward and I say, take me instead. And in this, I want you to begin to reason with the take me instead mentality. That this is not about you preserving your skin. This is about you being willing to give up your skin to preserve something greater that God desires to do in this earth. The willingness to suffer that others might live or at least not suffer alone. One of those stories in history that I struggle with knowing how to apply is when, I think it was Perpetua, Perpetua, I remember, never know how to pronounce her name uh, properly, but it was first century Christianity, and it was a, a band of Christians that were uh, taken because they, would re they refused to uh, sprinkle incense to, uh, whether it was a god or the emperor, I, I don't remember which one it was. And a pastor is going to, though he wasn't arrested, join them in their cell and end up dying with them so that he could be present with them in their sufferings. Now, you have to admit, if you're a pastor, you sort of just want to go, okay, well, that was a one-time situation. God doesn't ask every pastor to do that, right? But it's an interesting tension, and it's a good tension that it creates. And that is that even though other people 
are having to make decisions, are we willing to identify with them even if they make a decision different than we would? Are we willing to suffer with them even if they make a decision different than we would? You know, there are Christians that are imprisoned right now and we are commissioned to pray for them, to remember them as if in chains with them. And so as a result, part of the body of Christ and part of our key role and function is to identify with those that are in a difficult situation and that are suffering for, get this, Christ's sake. Now here's what's gonna shock you as I progress in this. And that is that for Christ's sake can mean something different for each of us. And for us, we need to be obedient to the light that we have in front of us. And as a result, there is a certain deference that we give to others, recognizing they may make a different decision, but if in their conscience they're walking in the light of truth, we want to stand with them. The pastor. We could describe the pastor as the one that visits the sick, whether contagious or not. In other words, a pastor throughout history doesn't just wait till someone's not contagious to come visit them. He visits people even when they're contagious because he recognizes they need courage and strength in their time of suffering. Not after their suffering's over to pat them on the head and go, I'm glad you made it through it, but to actually visit them in the midst of their difficulty. The one that visits the imprisoned, even if that means he gets thrown to the wild beasts along with them. Who would do that? And it's a good question. Who would do that? And yet there's something so inspiring about that model that I think we should pause and dwell upon it to say, God, what is my role right now for a suffering church? There are people all over the world that right now, because of this dilemma, which might not be a dilemma for you. For you, you're like, it's pretty, you know, cut and dry. God gave us a vaccine. Let's just get it. And that, that does solve a lot of things, I have to admit. But for those that have a conscionable issue and blockade, this is a real challenge to know what to do. The church, the place ready to embrace the sinful, the unhealthy, the broken, and the diseased. The place where health is supplied, not required for entry. Now, I am going to always encourage those of you that are showing uh, symptoms of sickness to stay home and to uh, engage with this truth a different way, which we can nowadays. Uh, because that's just, that is respectful. However, as a church, it's interesting, Jesus Christ didn't require that people were healthy before they came to him. And he is the body of Christ. I mean, in the truest sense, right? And so as a result, of course, we have the illustration of the leper, that which the world would say is unclean, Jesus approaches and actually touches. When the unclean, when the sick encounter the body of Christ, what happens to them? they get healthy. We are a place that makes people healthy, not unhealthy. So when the body of Christ functions as the body of Christ, health increases in this world, not decreases. That's just a simple foundational line of thought. When churches begin to require a vaccine passport for entry, they are violating one of the most basic foundational codes of how Christianity functions. And that is that our unity is in the fellowship with Jesus and his cross work. We are all believers in Christ. And it has never been based on the other subtleties. So though there may be a risk with someone that doesn't have the vaccine passport to come in and, oh, yes, we could get a spread, we also trust that God is greater than such things. 
And so as a result, one of my biggest grievances isn't with the government, it's with the church. And when the church starts segregating based on something like this, whether it is, do you have a vaccine passport? You can't enter. Or did you get the vaccine? What you did, you cannot enter. Either way, unacceptable. The challenges of the early church, so they had their challenges too. And of course, for most of us, we're like, boy, I wish we had those challenges. Food sacrifice to idols, it was a huge issue of conscience. Big issue, big stumbling block. And food sacrifice to idols was everywhere. So could you imagine what that would be like? It's like, I can't eat anything today because every single option I have was sacrificed to an idol. Oh, no, unless I get my own garden and grow it. Well, what can I do? And so it creates with a very essential ingredient to living called food, it created a hazard for the conscience. Head coverings, which day of the week to celebrate the Sabbath. Circumcision, how could you not be circumcised? I mean, my dad, his dad, his granddad, you know, that was a funny progression. I've always been circumcised. How could you not? That's just part of our culture. In other words, when it becomes a conscience issue, it, it, it has a weighty uh, effect and impact upon the body of Christ. And each one of these was creating division. The conscience, sunidesis. So the conscience is a very unique part of us that most of us have never spent a lot of time understanding. And even when you try and understand it, it's a little confusing, just to be honest with you. It's like, why do you have this other opinion inside of your body? You know, your mind could say, I really want to do this. And you have this other part of you that says, I don't think you should. What? Shut up. Uh, what are you doing? Who is that that's talking? What is that? And so that is what we could call the conscience. And the Greek word, which it's, this is mentioned many times in the New Testament. This is not a small thing in the Bible. Sunidesis, joint knowledge is actually the, you know, the, the way you'd break down the meaning of this word. Joint knowledge, which is a, a really strange uh, definition. Maybe a more simple one is the moral sense of right and wrong, or the other set of eyes to view the matter, or the other perspective of the soul that doesn't seem to side with self. There's another part of you that could actually feel a prick of guilt, even though over here you're like, yeah, I'll do that. And this other side's like, you shouldn't do that. Well, what is that? Because it's, it's not in agreement with your agenda, and yet it still speaks. It's like on the other side of the room giving its opinion. And where did this come from? It seems to be something that God has planted inside of all of us. He has given us this other perspective, and how we relate to that other perspective is critically important to the health of our inner man. The conscience. So one of the ways that I could describe it is driving mirrors. Okay, when you're driving down the road, and say you decide that you want to change lanes. It's like, you know what? I feel like changing lanes. There's another perspective, another angle on the same situation, which we could call your conscience, which is the driving mirrors in this situation. You can look at your rearview mirror, you can look at your side mirrors, and they may actually disagree with your desire to change lanes because you got that one slow truck in front of you, right? And, oh, the guy's putzing along and you're like, oh, I'm getting out of here. Yeah, but then when you consult those driving mirrors, they may actually say, no, even though you have a desire to do this, you should not. And if you violate that, you're risking your life. And that's not an understatement. When you violate your conscience, you risk your life. You, you risk everything in your soul. 
when you violate that eyesight. So what this conscience is, is of extreme value and importance to the human life. The conscience, the soul's eye. So one of the descriptors I've had for uh, this is both the the, the doctor on the other side of the room, sort of like the second opinion. You know, have you ever gone to the doctor and then you'll say, well, we'll go get a second opinion. Because you don't really like the first opinion, right? I don't, I don't want to hear a second opinion. But the conscience is sort of like that second opinion. It's this very smart doctor character on the other side of the room that when you go to him, you're like, so what do you think? And it's critical that you actually heed that opinion. The soul's eye, my dad used to always say, you know, protect your eyes. He was very, very sensitive to eyes. Like my dad never liked it when we would do things with our eyes, you know, try and pull back our eyelids or anything like that. He'd get, uh, he'd get very upset about that. And he would always say, you know, protect your eyes. You only have one pair of them. And it makes sense. It's true, right? And if you damage your eyes, you don't get another set. It's just like the one set you were given. If you were to think about the conscience in a similar way, that on the other side of your soul, you have the ability to see something. And it's like a big eye. That's not good if you've seen Lord of the Rings. But uh, it, it's, it's like an eye that can see and discern something that this other lens that you have, your normal perspective in life doesn't see maybe. Just like the driving mirrors. And that one eye, if you put it out, it's a big deal. You don't want to put that eye out, even though it's oftentimes telling you things or seeing things that you don't want to see. And so the conscience is a very delicate thing like an eye, and it's meant to be preserved. And so as a result, when it says something, you need to listen to it. And if you try and silence it, it's called searing it in Scripture. And it's a very, very bad thing. The biblical facts about the conscience... The conscience can be weak, which means it can be untrained. So even though all of us have a conscience, sometimes our conscience can be misled because of our upbringing. And we can find ourselves paranoid about certain things. If you study tribes uh, in Papua New Guinea, like I'm going through that series called Daring to Do with Stanley Dale, they had a conscience and they were so afraid of the Kenbu spirits. And if a wild dog ever attacked one of their pigs, they could not eat that pig because that was a Kenbu spirit. And if they do, they'll blow up like a blowfish and die, right? And so in their conscience, they knew it was wrong to eat of that pig. You could show up in the village and say, that doesn't bother me because your conscience wasn't trained in the same way. In other words, it, you can have a weak conscience. It can be a misled conscience, but it's called in scripture a weak conscience, in 1 Corinthians 8.10, it can be trained. So a conscience can be developed and a conscience can be increased in its maturity and its ability to handle the circumstances around it so that it's not played by demons, for instance, which is what's happening in these tribal situations all the time. They genuinely have terror at doing the wrong thing lest they die. And so as a result, they have a conscience, but it's been mistrained or misled. But a conscience can be trained. A conscience can also be seared, 1 Timothy 4.2. It can be trained incorrectly. And when a, when a conscience, when you don't heed it, it actually causes it to lose its ability to function to the point where you can totally silence it and it's like putting out the eye. 
It can be ignored, 1 Timothy 1.19, and every single one of us knows that. Every single one of us has had that prick of guilt after we did something that we knew we shouldn't. And that's our conscience actually responding to something. And so even though it can be ignored, it still gives off its nice aroma of guilt afterwards. And that's actually a gift to us as humans. It is tremendously important, 1 Peter 2.19. The conscience is not to be taken lightly, it has extreme value in the human life. The conscience, the second opinion of the soul. Those driving mirrors are very, very important for us. 1 Peter 2.19. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. So according to what Peter is saying via the Holy Spirit, he's saying it's commendable in the kingdom of heaven if because your conscience says you can't do something, you endure grief and suffer wrong for it. So in other words, to heed your conscience is of very, very high importance. Historically, this nation is regarded the importance of conscience. So this is just a few samples of that that are, some are very interesting. Here's Harper Lee, To Kill a Mockingbird, one of the, considered probably the greatest piece of literature by most people, not just Christians, in, in, in America, right? Scout says, Atticus, you must be wrong. Atticus says, how's that? Scout says, well, most folks seem to think they're right and you're wrong. Atticus says, they're certainly entitled to think that and they're entitled to full respect for their opinions, said Atticus. But before I can live with other folks, I've got to live with myself. The one thing that doesn't abide by majority rule is a person's conscience. George Washington said, labor to keep alive in your breast that little spark of celestial fire called conscience. John Milton said, give me the liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to conscience above all liberties. In other words, John Milton is going to say, out of all the liberties that I could have, the liberty that I would choose is to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to what that I on the other side of my soul is saying. That that is the greatest of all liberties. Martin Luther King Jr. said, there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic, nor popular, but he must take it because conscience tells him it is right. On some positions, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? And vanity comes along and asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of convenience, but where he stands in moments of challenge, moments of great crisis and controversy. Martin Luther, ironically, after quoting Martin Luther King Jr., now I quote Martin Luther, very different time period. This is his reply to the Diet of Worms, I can never say it correctly, April 18, 1521, a key moment where he, where he pins the uh, theses on the Vatican door, and he is told to recant, and he says, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Albert Einstein. Well, I'm not necessarily wanting to turn out like Albert Einstein, whether it's hairdo or uh, condition of soul. He did say this, never do anything against conscience even if the state demands it. Well, that's interesting. So I'm about to surprise probably most of you in here because everyone seems to want to know my position on this, and I never seem to answer that question. Because what you're looking for is a personal position. And yet, 
my position is for the body of Christ. I am literally trying to land my feet on what will serve the kingdom of heaven. That is my position on this, which I'm going to now build. And so like classic Eric Ludi, probably everyone will be mad at me by the time this is over. But uh, let's start uh, taking our machete and start hacking through the jungle together. The difference between preference and conviction. Preferences can and should be compromised for the sake of unity with others. That's a basic premise of a preference. In other words, a preference shouldn't lead to disunity. It's a preference. You know, what do you want to eat for dinner tonight? You ask my family that, and there will be eight opinions. <laughs> and it's good that my family compromises with one another to work together. Because it's not a conviction. I must eat this, otherwise I'll go to hell. It's not one of those, okay? But a conviction is very different. Look at a conviction. It ought never to be compromised, no matter the occasion or circumstances. A conviction is of the conscience. It's a derivative of the conscience. It's a result of what's going on in the conscience. And as a result, it ought not to be compromised. So let's practice uh, a few go around uh, with these. So we'll, we'll do a little exercising together. Practice number one, my preference on taxes. Okay, Eric, tell me about paying taxes. What, what do you think? Well, I don't want to pay taxes. Okay, that would be my preference. I don't want to pay taxes. It'd be fascinating to go around the room and see how many of you want to pay taxes. <laughs> Practice number one, my conviction on paying taxes. The government is my rightful God-given authority, and even if I disagree with their current tax law, I will submit to it, get this, as unto God. In other words, even though I'm not going to say government is God, I'm going to say I am serving God by submitting and paying taxes according to a tax law that I may even feel is unjust. But it doesn't violate my conscience. I am not sinning in paying those taxes. Now, some of you, in fact, I, we have an accountant in here that would probably say you are sinning if you pay more than you should be. But that's a different issue, right? And so for all of us, we need to recognize that you may dif differ from me on this. But this is my conviction. My conviction is, as, a, as a man of God is that I ought to pay taxes. Where does that come from? Matthew 22, 17 through 21. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? They're speaking to Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So for many of us in here, even though there is more in, in the New Testament about this, there is a foundational reason why we build our conviction, not just around our preference, but our conscience states to us that God's word has actually given us clear statement on the matter. So therefore, even though my preference would say, I don't like this, my conviction will say, I will do it. Practice number two, my preference on wearing masks. I know I'm supposed to call them facial coverings, but it feels better when I call them masks. <laughs> and what is my preference? Well, I don't want to wear a mask. Technically, if you really were to cut me open, I would say, I hate masks, right? I really do not like masks at all, and it's a rare thing when you see me walking around with one, right? However, and I had this same debacle when we, they first started issuing masks. Now, I know I could differ from you. Your position on this is your position. That's part of what my whole message is. But I'm giving you a practice here. I'm showing you how a man reasons through things. Okay, for me, when they suddenly are just saying, we suggest that you wear a mask, 
Well, I don't like that because I can't wear a mask if you just suggest it because, first of all, it seems to me to be a statement of fear of a virus while I'm not fearful of it. So if I wear a mask, I look like I'm fearful, and I can't do that because of what I represent, which is a Christian, right? So as a result, unless you mandate it, I can't wear one. Isn't that a funny thing? Unless it's mandated. I remember telling that to Leslie. Unless they mandate this, I can't wear one, which is putting me in a very awkward position. And I don't know if you guys remember the social pressure that was increasing uh, at the time. It's like, well, he's not wearing a mask. It's like, I can't wear a mask. They didn't mandate it yet. But once they do, now suddenly, because it's not a violation of my conscience to wear a mask, I mean, it doesn't, there's no, nothing in the Bible that says do not wear a mask. Uh, however, we are supposed to have our face uncovered and shine forth the glory of God. But that's, that's a different argument. <laughs> that I felt, okay, as a man of God, if my government asked me, or if that business asked me to put on a mask, I don't want to. My preference is totally against it, and I do not want to encourage a tyrannical system. And I understand the thinking that many of you have had. It's like, well, all we're doing is encouraging this. It's only going to get worse. However, that's not the command of Scripture. It's to not encourage the tyrannical system. It's to submit, even if it is a tyrannical system. So therefore, as a man of God, I will put on a mask if I am requested by a business owner in their establishment, because that's their territory. Or if the government were to say, you must, when you enter these facilities, wear a mask. Uh, Okay, I have the same human response as some of you might. Some of you like masks, okay? I don't know what's going on inside of your head, but... (laughs) So here's my conviction on wearing masks. The government is my rightful God-given authority. Even if I disagree with the current mask mandate, I will submit to it, get this, as unto God. So as I do it, I want to do it as if I'm serving God because I trust that that mandate is still filtering through his fingers. It's not asking me to violate my conscience. It's not asking me to violate some clear word of scripture. However, for you, it might be. There could be a scripture like, Eric, you're missing this one. And your conscience is stating you cannot put on that mask. And you get this, I am going to support you in that. I am not going to try and convince you to be like me. I want to, you to understand that each of us needs to appropriate these things in accordance with our conscience. Romans 13, 1 through 7, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, it's very easy for us to say, well, that was back then, but today there is no way these authorities are appointed by God. And yet back then they were worse. I know, that's hard for us to imagine, but they were worse back then. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and, who, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake." For because of this, you also pay taxes. What an interesting statement that is. Because of this, for conscience sake, we also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs are due. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Now, many of us in here really struggled with Romans 13 as we walked through the COVID-19 challenge. Because what if what is being requested of us is idiotic? What if it's not based on facts? I don't know that 
it, something being based on facts is the requirement for us to show honor and respect. And that's a challenge that I want us to grapple with. I'm not giving this message because I have everything figured out. I'm giving all the raw data for how we as Christians navigate through this. If something doesn't violate our conscience, then we actually are called to submit. But what if it does violate our conscience? We're gonna do another practice here. Now, we don't have mandatory abortions here in America, but in China, they've had that for decades where literally you have a limit of how many children, was it the one child uh, rule in China? And if you got pregnant, it was a mandatory forced abortion. Whoa, so okay, ask me about that. So uh, Eric, what, what do you think about uh, mandatory abortion? Well, let me give you my preference first. I really, really want to keep my baby. But this is more than preference, and every one of us in here knows that. This is an issue of conscience. So my conviction on mandatory abortion the government is my rightful God-given authority, but earthly government is not my highest authority. If the government ever commands me to do something that violates my king's commands to me expressed in the word of God, then as an issue of conscience, I must say, not on your life. Gulp, I might gulp along with it. But that's, that's a tension of great matter for us. Acts 4, 18 through 19, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. So they've asked Peter and John not to do something. But what they're asking them not to do is something that they're commanded by their king to do. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. And then again in Acts 5, we have the same dynamic. Did we, they, that, now they see that they've been speaking in the name of Jesus, so they say, did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So it's funny, the Bible isn't contradictory when it says, hey, submit to men, obey men. But we could say, as far as they don't ask you to violate God. But when they ask you to violate God, then it becomes an issue of conscience. And you cannot obey men in that situation, and it is commendable to you if you suffer in maintaining the integrity of your conscience. Paul on the importance of conscience in the church. Acts 23.1, then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Acts 24.16, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Romans 9.1, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. The conscience of Paul is a very, very serious thing, and he references it over and over again, that his conscience is clear in this matter, that he is violating his conscience in doing this. For us, most of us have not been groomed in conscience, and so as a result, it's somewhat of a foreign idea to make a statement like, my conscience also bearing witness. It's like, what in the world does that mean? Well, that means that other eye is seeing the same thing and agreeing. Yep, that's the right decision. But this could cost me my life. Yep, but it's the right thing to do. My conscience is also bearing me witness. This is the way I need to walk. So I'm gonna give you some more practices. This will really be fun for us. Because even in this room, I mean, we could splinter three different ways just on this topic. This is fun. I'm enjoying it now. I'm really getting in the groove. The gun. So we put a gun on the table. And then listen to this question. Should I pick up that gun if my government asks me to? And there's three different responses in here. Because, and I'll go through them. 
Option number one, that gun is evil. So no, because it's a conviction of violation of conscience, I cannot pick it up. And there are people in the church that actually believe that gun to be evil. So therefore, it is against their conscience to actually handle it. So they will not touch it. Now, some of you are thinking, what? That is ridiculous. That's because your conscience isn't saying the same thing. However, to the degree that their conscience is dictating that, I want to protect them. And I'll stand by them and say they shouldn't touch it. Option number two, that gun is amoral, which means it does not have a moral value. This is just a different conclusion in this group. I'm not trying to teach a perspective on this. I'm saying these are different perspectives you could have. That gun is amoral. It doesn't have a moral value in and of itself. It's not evil or good. It's just a gun. So it depends on its use. What am I supposed to do with this gun? That'll depend on if I'm going to pick it up for you. You see, if you ask me to go and kill someone, I can't do that. If you ask me to shoot a quail, okay. If you ask me to shoot a tree, all right. <laughs> Option number three, that gun is the tool God invented to purge evil. So, absolutely. Is this the best you got? Don't you have a better gun than this one? In other words, depending on your perspective, each one of them being ruled by conscience, you know, there's some great illustrations of men of God that have gone off to war to fight for what they would call truth and righteousness. And there's other men that have not gone off to war and suffered greatly for it because in their conscience they didn't feel they could. And I'm going to stand with both, even though I sound rather schizophrenic in so doing. Because I stand with conscience within the body of Christ, recognizing that there's a reasonable allowance for us to land different on some of these issues. Let's do another practice, money. Should I use money as my means of buying and selling? Well, you do know who's making this money. Corrupt government is making it. There's like an all-seeing eye on that money. Are you actually, you have some of it in your pocket? Okay, now most of us don't come from that vantage point. To most of us, just like, oh, it's fine. We don't think about where it comes from, you know, what could have been done to create it. We just use it because that's the only way to function, right? And so should I use money as my means of buying and selling? Here's three options. Option number one, that money is evil. So no, because it's a conviction of violation of conscience. If you thought money was evil, you shouldn't use it. It's going to create hazards for your life. But I would support your conscience, even though it's going to be a unique life. <laughs> Option number two, that money is amoral, which means it doesn't have a moral value. It's neither good nor evil. So it depends on its use. Well, how am I going to use it? If you ask me to use it this way, I couldn't. But if you ask me to use it this way, sure, that's fine. Option number three, that money is the tool God invented to promote his kingdom in this earth. So absolutely, give me as much of it as you can. <laughs> so money is a unique tension that most of us don't think through. We have things all the time that are not political in our life that we don't think about. And we make decisions on all the time. The vaccine is political, which has created a dynamic which has separated the body of Christ in a very, very strong way because it's hard for us to see the issue separate from the politics. It really is. It is a very, very challenging issue for us. The vaccine. Uh-oh. Should I get the vaccine if the government mandates it? Option number one, the vaccine is evil. So no, because it's a conviction of violation of conscience. 
Now, for those of you in here that have a positive view towards the vaccine or have a neutral view, that one may seem extreme. And yet there are people in this room that their genuine conclusion is that this is actually harmful. This is not something that it has any redeeming value to it, and it should be avoided at all costs. In fact, I cannot take it into my body. Second one, option number two, the vaccine is amoral. So it depends on the why behind getting it. And so that could be fear. If you're getting it for fear's sake, I would say you shouldn't do that. Or you're avoiding it for fear's sake, that's a bad reason to avoid it. Why are you getting it? And that's going to play into the upcoming statements that I make. Because is it a preference or a conviction? If it's a preference, we need to actually follow a certain line of thinking in Scripture. If it's a conviction, you can't get it. Option number three, that vaccine is the tool God invented to preserve the human race. So absolutely. So what we see are three different strains of how we could all appropriate this vaccine. And technically these exist right now. And in this room, I have a hunch that we have all three of those. Uh, makes it really fun for me up here. Informing the conscience. Is the amoral item being used in an immoral way? So let's imagine that we concluded that the vaccine itself is amoral. It doesn't have a morality in and of itself. It's just sitting there in a syringe, right? It's, it doesn't have an evil intent, nor does it have a good intent. It just is. So then how do we decide? Because if you've already concluded that the vaccine is evil, then that's, well, that sort of concludes it right there. Shut the book. All right, we're, we're done. We have a conscience issue. But sometimes there can be information that we get that is incorrect, which is very plausible nowadays. I don't know if you guys have picked up on that. You know, when you don't trust the media and you stop trusting governments and you stop trusting science and you feel like everyone is fudging it to make a, you know, to have a political agenda or a power grab, well, then you're very vulnerable to listening to all sorts of other sources that may not be credible, but may be hearsay. So it makes us very vulnerable right now as the church to make decisions based on hazardous foundational territory. And so this is a tough one for us. But like I'm going to say, your conscience matters in this. So let's say that we consider it amoral. But then imagine that we get a, a bit of information like this. The matter of fetal tissue. If fetal tissue from aborted babies is being used to produce this vaccine, then that depends... That, that, then the that depends crowd suddenly moves strongly into the conviction crowd. Now, let's just hazard a statement. Okay, I'm going to address this in just a second. But let's just imagine that you found out that for you to get that vaccine, a baby had to be killed. Uh, and for other people to continue to get the vaccine, more babies would have to be killed. Uh, now, suddenly, that neutral item sitting there in a syringe suddenly has moral value or implications. Now, just imagine, because there's a lot of us, even in this room, that are struggling with this very issue. In fact, as you heard from the pastor in Texas, the reason that people have this desire for a religious exemption is over the issue of what they would call pro-life, or this fetal tissue issue. But what if our information is not totally correct? You see, our conscience can be dictated by information we're getting but what if the information we're getting isn't correct? 
this, the ramifications in the body of Christ are huge right now. So if fetal tissue from aborted babies is being used to produce this vaccine, then the that depends crowd suddenly moves strongly into the conviction crowd. Key question, is fetal tissue being used in producing the vaccine? So I spent this week with a surgeon, which you guys know, I'm just not going to uh, give his name, and I, and I asked him very specifically to give me accurate information. I said, this is a big issue to the body of Christ. We need to know. I don't know who to trust. I don't even know that I trust science. I don't even know that I trust what you're going to say. <laughs> However, I had him research. I had a, he researched uh, before all the politics entered into this and all the research that was before it. And so I'm going to give you an answer to that, okay? I said, what percentage of accuracy is this? And he, he said he had to agree that he can't say 100% because he has the same challenges. He recognizes that there's a dubious nature to data uh, as of late. However, he feels very confident. He'd like to say 100%, but he's going to say 95. Okay, so I'm just going to read it to you. Doctor, can you answer a question for me? Eric says, is it true that fetal tissue is being used in the production of these vaccines? Doctor, not exactly. Fetal tissue was not used in the production of any of the five major worldwide vaccines, but something known as fetal cell lines were used in the process of building three of the major vaccines. Johnson & Johnson, CanSino, and the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccines were all produced using fetal cell lines. Fetal cell lines are cells derived from the kidney of an aborted baby back in 1972. Meanwhile, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were not developed using fetal cell lines, but one of the tests run on them to determine viability was run on cells from the same fetal cell line, derived from the aborted kidney in 1972. In other words, no fetal tissue was used in the production of the vaccines, but cells from a 1972 fetal cell line were used in the production of the J Johnson & Johnson, CanSino, and Oxford vaccines, and they were used in the testing of the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. But, to note, no additional babies were actually aborted in the process to produce any of these vaccines, and no additional babies will need to be aborted to sustain the production of any of these vaccines. That may not change your position, but it does help clarify some things that are very, very confusing to us. And I'm actually thinking of going deeper into this fetal cell line thing, not today, but to actually help, because some of this is like, whoa, how in the world do I even wrap my mind around that? But what that fetal cell line is, is uh, literally just cells from that kidney back in 1972 that are inexplicably still replicating. And so, in a sense, they, usually a cell will replicate around 50 times. This has continued to replicate for 50 years. And it is this remarkable thing that for certain things to be tested, they need living tissue. They need living matter. And it needs to be pure. So when it comes from a baby, it's pure. So you can understand some of the scientific side of it. However, if you think that a baby is being aborted to produce a vaccine, that's somewhat misleading. And yet there still is an aborted kidney involved. But for our conscience to resolve itself around the facts as opposed to the hearsay is actually very, very important. In other words, I'm not trying to change anyone's mind in this because I don't have an agenda that way. But what I want to do is just show us how our conscience is formed. Handling the Christian with a different conscience. If you conclude differently than I do, 
or you guys conclude differently than each other, which I could almost guarantee is going to happen to some degree in here. How are we supposed to handle that? So Paul is going to reference those that have a weak conscience, which is an untrained conscience, and they cannot eat food sacrificed to idols. They genuinely believe that that idol is real and it has power over them if they eat. And Paul is like, uh, that idol is not real. God created the food. In his own conscience, he's clear to eat it. Let's read that, 1 Corinthians 8. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, in whom, of whom all are all things, and we, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, all are, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we, better, are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish, for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That's quite a statement. In other words, Paul is willing to sacrifice something that he has perfect liberty in doing. But if it were to cause his brother to stumble, he's actually going to restrain because he's thinking about the health of his brother not just his own health. And so as a result, there's some of us that might feel pressured into making a decision. I want you to make a decision that is in agreement with your conscience. And so to do that, you sort of need to understand where your conscience is turning on this. And that's part of what I'm trying to give you the raw materials to make decisions with. The priority of love in the church. It's not an issue of a vaccine. It's an issue of our bond in Christ. What bonds us together isn't if we're pro or anti-vax. What bonds us together is our love for Jesus Christ. That's what the church is made of. And when we begin to divide it based on that, based on one particular person's conscience to say, you must get the vaccine, otherwise you cannot participate in this body, we are actually stumbling someone. Could you imagine because that person wants to be in the body, they get the vaccine, but it goes against their conscience to do it? And so as a result, the church is actually leading people to stumble because they're not educating their conscience. Instead, they're basically giving a command, a division order. If you do not come to the same conclusion we have, then the only way to solve that is for you to compromise. Otherwise, you'll have to go elsewhere. John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples. Uh-oh, I left a part off. I wonder what he's talking about. What, what will be the the obvious sign that we are the disciples of Christ? Is it that we're vaccinated? Is it that we're not vaccinated? What is the symbol? Because it has to be one of those two. It has nothing to do with either of those. And it never has and it never will. That is not the defining attribute of the healthy body. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is what rules and reigns in our midst. We love one another even when we differ, even when we recognize this guy just lost his job and we're thinking he could have easily kept it. This is not what he should have, this is not the hill he should have died on. However, 
we then support him, help him find a new job. In other words, we may have a difference of opinion, but we still are standing together because we recognize that conscience matters in this. And I want to preserve your conscience. I want to stand with you even if you would make a decision that would be different than the way I would make it. I want to stand with you. I want to help you. I want to serve you. I want to see the body of Christ strong in and through this. What's my position on the matter? I'm pro-body of Christ, not pro-vaccine or anti-vax. Isn't that satisfying? Isn't that the worst answer I could give? What's my position on the matter? I want the body of Christ to think biblically in this, conclude biblically in this, and act biblically in this. What's my position on the matter? Because of that, this means that we will not, as a church, divide over this matter in the church. And we will not block people from fellowship that conclude differently. But we will show deference for differing positions in the body and never close off fellowship with those whose conscience dictates differently than our own. We need grace, body of Christ. Some of us aren't experiencing a tremendous pressure on this point, but we feel a tremble in our soul as we feel something moving upon us that we may need to make a decision. I think it's always wise to make a decision long before you're asked to make a decision. I think it's always good to know your position. If someone ever asked you to deny Christ, to know your position on that. And the vaccine seems like such a pathetic issue to have be the main key thing that would bring about all of this drama. It's like, you've got to be kidding, a vaccine? Vaccines all throughout my life were no big deal. People got vaccines all the time and no one ever thought about it. It's just part of how things work. Science is good. And now suddenly it's an issue of conscience for various factors that many of you understand because you've spent a lot of time thinking about it. However, what I want to do is just decide as the body of Christ, we are not going to divide over this. Father, we need your grace in this matter. And we ask for it. We ask that you would intervene and that you would grant us precisely what we need to unite and to be strong together in Christ. Lord, may we remember that communion that we have in you. And may we not allow anything the enemy has up his sleeve to bring division to it. It's in the precious name we pray, amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.